It's a hopeful time of year. Last week marked the Persian New Year celebration of Nowruz. Jewish families celebrated Passover this week. Christians are preparing for Easter Sunday. All adults will soon be eligible for coronavirus vaccines. Local farms are starting to show off their baby animals. Oh, and recreational marijuana is now legal in New York. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, we'll go over the week's top headlines. There were immediate changes in terms of the ability to actually possess weed and even smoke it. We'll hear a sea shanty. Yes, I said a sea shanty about the Governor Mario M. Cuomo Bridge. Yet the whistleblower say inspectors pass right by decay. We'll talk to the newly crowned valedictorian of Albany High's class of 2021. I realized that I can't allow other people to like kind of dictate how I decide to, you know, spend my um, my future. And local comedian Aaron Harks makes us laugh. Mother, I'd like you to meet my boyfriend Lego Man. (laughs) (laughs) This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Okay, let's join Times Union editor Casey Seiler for a look at what appeared this week in the Times Union and on timesunion.com. Hey, Casey, welcome back to the podcast. Let's talk top headlines. Uh, one of the biggest ones, New York, marijuana is now legal here. We join a you know, cadre of about 16 states. Can you tell me what happened? Uh, well, it all happened very quickly. We went from having an announced deal on Sunday to having a vote on the resulting legislation on Tuesday in both houses, the Senate and the Assembly, and the governor signed it on Wednesday morning. While there were immediate changes in terms of the ability to actually possess weed and even smoke it in places where cigarette smoking is is now legal, your ability to walk into a, a retail outlet, a dispensary as they're known, uh, that's probably not going to be for, at the very least, uh, a year and a half. The state needs to construct the regulatory apparatus that, uh, that will oversee sales and licensing and all that good stuff. This is the beginning of a very long road. But it is, of course, historic, including in the sense that it brings criminal justice reforms that will allow for, you know, the expungement, the cleaning up of the records of people who, you know, were convicted of marijuana-related offenses. It, it is not dissimilar from uh, what happened to liquor when the state and the rest of the nation gave up on prohibition back in the early 1930s. Now, of course, for more on that and other news coming out of the Capitol, visit our Capitol Confidential blog at timesunion.com. All right. One final thing. Uh, You recently did an interview about a sea shanty, and I will let you intro the rest of that. 
Right. Kat Sullivan, who is a local gadfly and activist who has tangled with, among other powerful entities, the aforementioned uh, State Joint Commission on Public Ethics, responded to Brendan Lyons' uh, recent story noting the unsealing of the whistleblower lawsuit in the uh, the matter of um, broken bolts on the Governor Mario Cuomo Bridge, which we've discussed on this podcast before. Ms. Sullivan, who is uh, very musically minded in her political satire at times, composed uh, a sea shanty, sea shanties being a musical genre that is enjoying a renaissance uh, in uh, this pandemic moment, particularly on TikTok. She was inspired by uh, a, a shanty that was done by, I believe, a British woman explaining recent troubles at the Suez Canal with her own song, which is really good, and I recommend you check it out. And so Kat Sullivan very quickly put together her own shanty about the uh, potential structural flaw on the Cuomo Bridge. And it's really good. And her brogue is really good, too. It's certainly very catchy. I had it in my head for most of the week. Casey, we'll talk to you next week and we'll jump right into your interview with Kat Sullivan. Thanks, Jess. There once was a bridge called Tappan Sea, but is it safe? New York AG, we pay our toll, so it should be free from defective bolts. Yet the whistleblowers say inspectors pass right by decay. How many bolts you say could cause the bridge give way? So Kat Sullivan, thanks very much for taking the time. So I wanted to ask you about how the idea to do a sea shanty around the potential structural defect on the Mario Cuomo bridge developed because it's quite a, it's quite a remarkable piece of work. The nautical theme in New York seems to be very prevalent. You know, there's a, the Hudson is below the Tappan Zee. So it, made me think of water. And then um, just through the internet, uh, there was a sea shanty Sunday morning that I heard about um, the cargo ship that's blocking international trade. And I thought, you know, that's a really great way to tell a story for the audience to understand. And the people of New York need to hear the story about the Tappan Zee, because the question is, is it safe? So, um, you know, I've been following Times Union articles that yourself and Brendan Lyons have been putting out. And it it really does blow my mind that the truth of whether a bridge is safe or not is currently concealed. There's a private settlement and isn't just just the way it goes, you know, And, and should it be when there's public health risks? It's been five years, the truth is sealed, but were it free, would it reveal a government that would conceal a deal that had been made? Yet the whistleblowers say inspectors passed right by decay. How many bolts you say could cause the bridge give way? I've got to say your delivery is terrific. Your brogue is extremely credible. I am going to go out on a limb and note that since your last name is Sullivan, there might be some (laughs) Irish in your family background. Just a bit. But uh, my family does have ties to New York and we're all from Ireland. I've written before about 
some of your um, your satirical efforts, but as often with satire, they have a deadly serious intent behind them. Um, I think many people are familiar with your interruption of a Jacob meeting by bursting into your your own version of Frozen. You, of course, uh, have become known around the region, around the state for putting up billboards on a variety of causes ranging from the shooting of Edson Thevenin in Troy to nursing homes. You are, I think it's fair to say, one of the most energetic uh, gadflies in, in the state. It has, of course, put you in the crosshairs of Jacob before, famously. But I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, this is this is a lot of work and it comes with a considerable price tag, one imagines in terms of your billboard engagement, that type of thing. I mean, explain a little if you could about sort of the, the thinking behind all this work. So, you know, when, when an Emma Willard alumni approached me in 2016 um, with a heavy heart and a burden on their soul asking me if I was okay after what they knew happened to me at Emma Willard School. If I'm if I may, we should just we should note that for for those who don't know that your activism is really rooted in your story of sexual assault when you were a student at Emma Willard and your long battle with the school over acknowledging that assault and its subsequent treatment of you. Yeah, and, and hundreds of other assaults. I mean, there were 105 assaults at the Emma Willard School that they did not so much as call a parent or the local police. Um, what Emma Willard School did was have their attorney call the Rensselaer County DA after hours and ask them, um, what can we do? And, and that was a pattern that we saw there. So my returning to New York, um, I was very curious because I thought no one cared and so when someone reached back after 20 years and said, that's not what happened, we didn't know how to help you. And the question was, how could any of that have happened? And I find myself asking that of New York every single day for a different reason. And so I started studying New York, um, New York politics, if you will, because I wanted to see how a culture, how a people, how a government of an entire state would allow legal loopholes like the one that prevented me from taking Emma Willard to court and having the truth revealed. I was barred by time and a statute of limitations. So that's really where my curiosity of New York started and my advocacy, because I found that there were very many patterns where you have um, a structure of power that has the ability to keep information confidential. And that information very often is proof that there is a danger that has occurred, is occurring, will continue to occur, or will occur again. And that is information that the public has a right to know because that is our own safety. And that's where I draw a line, is when you hurt people and then you cover it up or you use whatever legal means you have to suppress the truth, which is the same thing to me. And so I've been trying desperately 
to figure out what kind of message would people hear and understand and feel the way they should, which is frightened that there is leadership in the government of the state of New York who would keep things from them, things that could hurt them, things that could hurt a lot of people, things that have hurt a lot of people. And why is it that the answers are not forthcoming? And I'm sure you drive yourself crazy with the same questions. <laughs> it's true. But back to the song really quickly. Was there, a, was there a, a shanty that you based it on? It really, it does seem to have kind of a classical construction to it. I, you know, I did it um, very quickly. That's one of the things I like to do too, is how quickly can I make something? And so um, I had read an article, which I believe was released Friday night, but I read it Saturday morning. And it said that 50 pages of the court documents had been released uh, regarding the Tappan Zee Bridge. Is that right? Actually, it was it was just Sunday morning. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. You're, if you read it Sunday morning, and I, I I'm not sure where you filmed it, but it's raining in the background. I mean, yeah. you must have done it Sunday morning. On my porch. Well, right? Yeah. Okay. You're right. So then I did it in less than 30 30 to 45. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and part of me doing that and having it be very rough. Um, but I was, I was inspired. Let me go back to your question. I was inspired simply cruising through my Twitter and seeing a popular post of someone singing a shanty song about the boat blocking the, the canal. And um, that was it. I listened to her sing hers a couple of times. And um, I just wrote out a few words. I've always been decent with poetry and gave it a few cracks on the video and decided to film it on my porch. So that the background you see is on my porch. It was raining. Then it just felt, it felt right. Behind closed doors in New York State, our lives are lost to power's sway. And there's one man whose very name, same as a dangerous bridge. Listen, I know you have yeah. to go. So thanks very much for taking the time. As as noted, I'm I'm a big fan of uh, of using satire for serious purposes, and uh, and I I really enjoyed this one. And your voice is just lovely. So oh, thank you. <laughs> listen, travel safe and have a great day. Be well. Yeah, the whistleblowers say inspectors pass right by decay. How many bolts you say? could cause the bridge give way. Now, as always, you can read more about all the stories and the issues and the sea shanties that we discuss on this podcast at timesunion.com. After the break, Albany High has never had a black valedictorian until now. We'll meet the prodigious student who finally broke this barrier. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts.
Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. With a near-perfect GPA, Albany High School senior Onovu Aditigvi Dangerfield is poised to be valedictorian of the class of 2021. She'll be the first African-American student to hold the honor in the school's 152-year history. Education reporter Rachel Silberstein caught up with her this week to chat. Here's a bit of their conversation. What does it feel like to be the first? Were you surprised to find out that there were no other Black valedictorians in the history of Albany High School, which is surprising? Um, yeah, I was definitely surprised because, you know, our school is a majority minority population and 152 years is quite a long time. So, yeah, I could definitely say like, the word that characterizes it is um, surprise. But if anything, you know, I'm like really privileged to be in this position. You know, hopefully it means something to the people in my school and my community. Um, but yeah, when I found out, I was like, <laughs> yeah, it was a shock. Yeah. So I read that you are interested in robotics. T- talk a little bit about um, how you got interested in robotics. Um, so my mom actually worked at RPI for a while. So I was always uh, going with her to campus and I always got to see like all these kids, um, not kids, but college students just like being engaged in that. That's a technological school. So I was just always surrounded by it. And then, you know, my uncle and my aunt, they're both engineers. So it was like engineering was always something that like I was very aware of just because I was surrounded by it. Um, For myself personally, though, when I got involved in um, the STEP program at RPI, which is the science technology entry program, I started to do it for myself. I started to like by my own joy kind of doing that kind of stuff. And then like, and it's kind of funny how like you talked about like me being a role model. I think one of the things is that um, I'm kind of honored that people like characterize it that way, but all I'm really doing is just like doing what I like and like having fun with it. And it's just nice that people find that inspirational, but with robotics and specific at my high school, I think it's important to kind of be honest about like how when I first went, I didn't feel very welcome because like you said, it's very male dominated, you know, field. It's mostly white men in that club. So when I first went, it was like, I I don't, I didn't think I could do it. And so kind of left, but then, you know, my passion for the field and like for the art of just being able to create and everything like that, like was kind of what drew me back to the club. And from there, you know, I, I realized that I can't allow other people to like kind of dictate how I decide to, you know, spend my, um, my future, especially over something that, you know, I really love to do. And knowing I want to go into this field, I think I just had to come to terms with, you know, it's not going to be hundred percent easy as, as a black woman. Just, it just isn't. And so I felt like it was like kind of my training for like, for getting ready um, for, to go to college, to, to be a surgeon, to, to be in the robotic field. So in many ways, it was like my little school for that kind of like understanding how to be confident within my own ability, understanding how to like assert myself, understanding sometimes I felt as though the only way I would get respect is being in those leadership positions. So that's why I would, <laughs> I'd work to become president. I worked to be like the drive team coach because sometimes that's the only way people would listen to you. I feel like you also have such a clear vision of what you want to do with your life. Like it's so specific, you know, how did you come to that decision that you wanted to be in surgery and robotics and combine those two passions? So what I say when people ask me what I want to do, I always say pediatric robotic assisted surgery, neurosurgery. And that's because um, I've grown up in a daycare my whole life. Like my my grandmother uh, ran a daycare for over 40 years. So I love kids like a lot and watching them kind of grow and shape themselves from their experiences was something really fascinating to me. So that's where the neurosurgery part comes in. And the robotic assisted is just because I've like 
I've been in the just engaged in the field for so long and I, I really love that aspect of it I think it just comes from like I just kept doing what I enjoyed doing I was like do I want to do this for the rest of my life but you know I'm sure it could change like yeah I'm, I'm kind of an impressionable person so you're also editor of the newspaper right your school newspaper is that something that journalism and media is is that also a passion um yeah I love that kind of stuff because yeah. I just I think it was like an outlet for me to kind of just like kind of relay whatever I was feeling, whatever I wanted to like let other people know that maybe they they weren't necessarily thinking about like a lot of the articles I actually wrote for the Nest were science and technology based. Like I would talk about like new vaccines that are out or new viruses that are out or like is AI like detrimental or beneficial. So, I mean, I kept it like to what I enjoyed anyway. It was just me translating that to words. And then sometimes I would do like editorials about like, I remember my favorite one that I've done um, was like 10 things you've always wanted to ask a black woman about her hair. And it was just like nice, like, like just talking, just, I don't know. It's like, it's like my way of like talking to like my peers. You have a hand in so many different pots. I would like, it seems like a really full schedule. Has it been hard sort of during the pandemic when things sort of slowed down and you didn't have as many opportunities to do a, a million things at the same time? Um, I think- I was still able to do it just virtually like yeah. um so like key club for example like we just we're kind of like just virtually doing like community service now so like we like write letters personally at home and then like we'll send them to the nursing home or something like that I think it's just finding like new ways to do it robotics kind of hurt because obviously that's kind of something you can't really do um so we didn't get to do the competition this year that that was kind of one of those things where it's like oh man but like nobody did so I guess yeah. it's kind of like we all struggled together um yeah but I think it's just, yeah, it's just how you have to find ways to like be creative, still being like engaged. And ultimately the reason that I did so many different clubs and everything like that is because I just, I really do like meeting new people. And so it was more of a thing where it's like, okay, well the association is still something that I can get out of this. So even if like we can't build robots or we can't necessarily like meet physically in a space to like discuss story article ideas or anything like that, um, we could still like get the association or like the essence of the club, which is like, and they allowed us to have soccer, so that was cool. Oh, you did? You got to have soccer? Yeah, yeah, we did, we did in-person soccer, so there's no way to do that one virtually. Yeah, that's awesome. I don't want to put too much pressure on you as, like, a role model, but, like, what advice do you have for, like, eighth grade, ninth graders who are coming into high school? Like, what advice, like, advice would you give them about, like, juggling the responsibilities of high school and being as successful as you've been? I think one of the things I wish I had known going into high school well, what advice I would give to someone else is just kind of like get involved as much as possible because I really like um, sometimes people ask me like, how do I do it all? And I really just don't like I have amazing, amazing teachers that I've been able to build relationships with only because I decided to get involved in like a bunch of different things and figure out what I loved. And through the, along the way, I just developed like really great relationships with people who I still like talk to like four years, six years after I've been their student or anything like that. And then, like, just the people that I've been able to make, I, I just feel like the people in soccer are completely different than the people in robotics or completely different than the people in the nest or completely different than the, the people that I work with at the nursing home. It's like, but like you work with all those different people, you change your life perspective. And I think that's like been able to help me a lot to like be a very holistic person. It's been a tough year for musicians and comedians, with pandemic restrictions and cancellations interfering with their very livelihood. But local musician and comedian Aaron Harks has weathered the storm and emerged with a new comedy album release called Zoloft and Probation. 
Arts and entertainment reporter Shrishti Matthew caught up with Harks to find out more about the album and her brand of comedy. How do you feel about the album coming out? I'm excited about the album itself, but I'm excited that uh, everybody is getting behind it in such a big way. It really, I mean, it kind of ties into how I was talking about the Capital Region and how great they've been to me over the years. And this is just proof of that. Like uh, everybody I've reached out to, I mean, it helps that nothing really big has happened in the past year, but um, just reaching out to people and having them being so willing and able to help me has been, it's just made me feel right at home. What are the events that inspired Zoloft and Probation? Like, what is behind, what's the story behind the name? Uh, it's actually one of the uh, taglines to one of my more popular jokes. I found this skirt and I brought up a little stick figure behind the counter and I set it down. She holds it up and she was like, oh my God, I can't wear things like this because I don't have any hips, but you're lucky because you're thick. <laughs> I said, you're lucky that I'm on Zoloft and Probation. <laughs> What are some of the experiences, life experiences that you've had that inspired Zoloft and probation? Um, well, I talk a lot about my sobriety. I've been sober, um, it'll say nine years on the album, but I, it's now 10 years. Um, Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, so I have a lot of, a lot of material from that. People say that when you start drinking heavily, you stop maturing emotionally. So if and when you quit drinking, you have to go back and start all over. I'm like, that sounds exhausting. <laughs> Who wants to go back and relive those years again? You know, it sucked enough the first time around being eight. <laughs> and just honestly, like one of my favorite bits is how I talk about, and this is an actual real thing. Like I went to the doctor and I was like, oh, my shoulder hurt. And she like handed me a prescription for painkillers. And I was like, you don't even want to look like just like that. Just throw me like drugs. Like she said, what's the problem? I was like, I don't know. Look at my chart. Shouldn't it say addict, alcoholic or better yet? Look at my shoulder. Maybe I'm making the whole thing up. Maybe it's all in my head. Maybe I'm trying to score drugs. She was like, all right, settle down. What are the, what are the experiences you think apart from getting on your sobriety were that impacted you and um, made it into the album? Like what made it and what didn't? Um, well, it was hard because the album's only 30 minutes long, mm -hmm. and, which is a blessing and a curse because like there's there's different like plateaus that you hit where you're like, it, and it's only other comedians will really understand it. It's like, hmm. I could say, okay, I have a really solid 25 or I have a really good 40. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, okay, only do 30. And you're like, oh, uh, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah but I have this one bit that's three minutes long, but I can't close with that, but I have to do. So it's like, it takes a lot of time to come up with, with certain amounts of time. And so, I mean, there were definitely, I usually, whenever I do a live comedy show, I'll start out with something that just happened either to me or like in real life or something. Like I usually have always started a show with something brand new, which is, probably really stupid, honestly, for uh, comedians to do. You should definitely do only things that you've been practicing, but it's just been kind of my thing, you know? Mm -hmm. um, like I had this one show where, um, and this is, it goes back to what we were talking about before, this, the host, like sometimes they act like it's this weird phenomenon that a woman is taking the stage. 
And so the introduction is so like, oh, oh, we got a girl coming up. Oh, like it's so dumb. So like I got up, I had this big audition in Columbus, Ohio for the Funny Bone to be considered a regular feature at all of their clubs. Mm-hmm. And that's definitely not a time to do anything new, but I just couldn't help myself. I got up on stage and the host did, he said that he was like, oh, we got a girl. Like he had never seen one before. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, sorry to interrupt your sausage fest. <laughs> and the crowd went nuts. And that was perfect. Cause then I had him for my set and it was, you know, it was great. I made a joke about my flight in because like Ohio has a, this weird sports rivalry with Michigan. So I like made a joke about that, like just to get them on your side, you know, it's like, it's been a great trip here, unfortunately, except for my layover in Michigan. And was like, boo, you know, so, you know, you just now have to figure out how to start, how to get them on Mm -hmm. your side. Like I was in a public restroom a couple of weeks ago and this woman came in and she accosted me for being on my cell phone. She's like, you shouldn't bring that in here. There's all sorts of like bacteria in the air and even fecal matter. So essentially it's like getting poop on your phone. I was like, you should probably stop opening your mouth in here. (laughs) What was it like recording your album? I recorded it live in uh, Toronto. Mm -hmm. And what was that like? Like, were you nervous? Were you scared? Oh, I was so nervous. I love Toronto. It's one of my favorite cities. Um, I've been there several times and it's been great to me. But Toronto is such a friendly place. Mm -hmm. So certain like of the like the darker jokes or the meaner jokes they don't go over well like if I have a joke where I'm being not so nice to somebody (laughs) Mm -hmm. in even if it's just in the joke like you can feel like I used to have a joke about my cat getting hit by a car and it was a really dark a really dark joke and it didn't happen it was just Mm -hmm. a joke Mm -hmm. I did that up there and I I got booed not that day this was like years ago And I got done and the host pulled me aside and she goes, they don't like that here. (laughs) I just knew from that, if and when I go back to Toronto, don't make jokes like that, you know, keep it light. They, they like the light stuff. They don't like, like a lot of self degradation. And so that kind of, that definitely shaped what went on the album, knowing that it was going to be in Toronto. You are a musician and a comedian. So have you ever thought of combining the two in any way? Yeah, I, I've thought about it and I've definitely been asked about it, but it's just nothing has occurred to me organically and I don't want to do anything that's forced. Uh, like if my first effort comes out of me doing like a, a humorous song, I want it to, to be great. Like it's got to be perfect and nothing. The, the only times I've ever come up with an idea to do like any type of funny song, when I like start to write, it's usually something that's happening like current events. And so if I'm not going to be on the stage in the next week or two, I don't bother. You talked about having a women's support system of women comedians. So what's that been like? Um, I mean, just there's a good handful of women that look out for one another, that we bounce jokes off one another. I Like my friend Jen, um, who is one of the funniest people I've ever met. Like whenever I have a show... Um, like I message her right before and vice versa. Like she'll mm-hmm. call me on her way home from hers and we bounce jokes off one another. And uh, my other friend, Jay, uh, the same thing, you know, it's just like, we just run jokes by each other. When we have opportunities that we can share with one another, we do that. And 
Uh, there are, they, they try and paint a picture of like this catty women that are like out to get one another, but really there's a lot more support than, than people think. And it's, it's Definitely. nice. We have to be there for each other. So where can we buy the album from? Uh, the album will be available on all streaming services like Apple Music, iTunes, Spotify, um, and all of the links are available at AaronHarks.com. Are you even home? I'm Aaron Harks, guys. Thank you so much. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Albany Times Union. It's produced and edited by myself, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. 